with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Hi, I'm Rez Krebs, and uh, I'm here today with Mike Morris, Emily for Prince George McKenzie. That's the place. Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to have Mike in because, uh, you know, we've made a couple of public comments recently that you're not going to be running in the fall. Um, but you've also got some interesting, you know, projects on the go that I assume are going to consume a lot of your energy after you, you know, after this fall is over and you're kind of a free man. Um, I just wanted to, first of all, talk about like, you know, first of all, thank you for your service over the last 10 or 11 years and just maybe get you to talk a little bit about, uh, some, you know, reflect on that, uh, that time and then think about, like I said, the future with this future for our forests initiative that you started. Uh, good questions. Uh, you know, when when I look back on on the past, um, and I've said this before, politics was never in my bucket list of things to do. Um, I was asked, and I couldn't come up with a legitimate reason to say no. Was basically how I got into it. Um, but but I guess the the pressing uh, reason for me to get into politics was to find out um, what was happening in that big black hole in the granite castle down in Victoria that they call the legislature building. Uh, when it comes to forestry issues, because I've been advocating for years that we have a problem with the cumulative effects of forest harvesting, of, of resource development, but forest harvesting for the most part. And I was getting stonewalled by, you know, by uh, previous government members. And, uh, you know, I had many meetings with uh, various ministers when I was with the BC Trappers Association. And uh, so I just wanted to go in and pop the hood open on that and just see where everything was, how it got buried and why it wasn't pursued. And uh, it was—it's a very complex machine. When you pop the hood open on a, on an industry like that in government, uh, there's a lot of moving parts, and it's taken a long time for me to try and figure it out. Yeah, and I mean, and now, I mean, I guess starting in the fall, you'll be kind of on the other side of that, maybe working as more of an advocate with future of forests. I want to go back a little bit. Like you use the term cumulative effects. I mean, that's to me, that's kind of a pretty new term. Um, but how did you get to see that forestry is having these? these kind of cumulative impacts on on things like biodiversity and, and I guess we're gonna, we'll talk a little bit about water management later but um, how did that how did you get to that conclusion uh, years and years and years of being an outdoors person a hunter a trapper uh, a fisherman so you know I've hunted and trapped in the same area for well over half a century now for over 50 years and I've seen the difference so um, you know, back in the early 70s when I was hunting and trapping in the same location that I do today, um, there was an abundance of animals, particularly in the areas that they had select harvested. So we didn't start clear cutting until the 60s, mid 60s. So a lot of my trap line area, a lot of the area I hunted was uh, had been selectively harvested maybe 20, 30, 40 years prior. And uh, there was an abundance of wildlife. There was lots of moose around. There was lots of fur bears around, um, all different animals, lots of fish around as well. And then over the years, as I saw each, the clear cut uh, accumulating um, and the free to grow status changed where they, you know, once, a, once a, a plantation got to be four or five feet high, they were logging the area next to it. And the habitat just wasn't uh, recuperating fast enough. So the wildlife disappeared. The moose disappeared. The marten disappeared, a lot of the fur bears disappeared, the raptors disappeared. I don't see an owl out there. I don't hear an owl out there anymore. So that cumulative effects led us to where we are here today, and uh, it's very problematic for us right across the province. You know, we have uh, our neighbors just over in uh, Fraser Lake and that region. 
are still reeling, you know, 175 job losses from the West Fraser uh, sawmill shutting down there in one form or another. It's been around for over 100 years. Um, there are people out there, you know, so you, you see letters in the citizen almost every week to say, saying there's lots of fiber in the bush. This is actually, you know, pick your poison. It's stumpage. It's it's environmentalist. The latest one was, you know, it's it's the tree huggers. Uh, it sounds to me like you're seeing some that what we might say are other values other than like non-timber values are being impacted by how we actually harvest this wood. What do you say to people who say there's lots of there's lots of wood out there to, to harvest still and we should keep these sawmills running? Yeah, you know, and this is a, a discussion I got into with uh, some of my colleagues as well in caucus. Um, uh, number one, I'd just like to acknowledge that losing a job is not um, the direction that anybody should be going, but unfortunately we are there. Um, what I can't uh, understand is why the company didn't put the employees on notice five years ago that this day was coming because I could see it and many other people could see it. Um, we do have a lot of trees out there. You know, we grow trees. Um, the problem is that we don't have many harvestable trees left. So when we look at the landscape, and I used to be in charge of Fraser Lake Detachment with the RCMP. I know the area well. I've traveled through the whole area um, exploring the, the different uh, aspects of it. I could see that an end was coming the way we were harvesting 20 years ago. Wow. And uh, we're, we, so we clear cut the area. We replant these massive uh, plantations of monoculture conifers uh, that choke out all the other deciduous growth, the moose habitat, the fur bearer habitat. And, uh, and, you know, now we have, you know, across the province, we've got 20 million hectares of monoculture conifer plantations that are anywhere from zero to 45 years old. So you say monoculture conifer, and that's a kind of $10 word there. What, yeah. We're saying pine and spruce, right? Yeah. And, and, it just, and just those species, basically. And just those species, yeah. 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 Okay. And, uh, and mostly pine in many areas that were predominantly spruce and balsam before. Okay. Balsam is a first species. Um, balsam is a species that the moose will feed on in the wintertime, and when that's gone, there's nothing left for the moose to eat, so we see them disappear as well. So when we see all this take place, um, that's problematic. And forestry and our civil culture practices, including clear cutting since the mid-60s, has led to a decline of over 50% of the wildlife populations in BC. Oh, my God. Probably more. And it's led to the extirpation of many species um, in regionally throughout the province here. I've well. heard that. You know, you talk about fur bearers. I heard about the fisher, uh, which is, you know, very cute but also quite vicious uh, little animal there in the bush. Uh, Apparently, there, are, there won't be any fisher in our region pretty soon here. Well, yeah, you know, the fisher um, are, are uh, threatened, a threatened species. And uh, they, uh, they're one of the uh, 84 species of, of wildlife in B.C. that den or nest in tree cavities. And the tree cavities are uh, in 100-year-old trees plus uh, that woodpeckers have started a cavity in and the animals have dug it out. And now that we've eliminated them, we've cut them all down, then those species are virtually disappearing across the province. I just want to add one more thing to the cumulative effects yeah. uh, that we see out there. In addition to the wildlife species disappearing across the province, um, the alarm bells have been raised for me uh, since uh, UBC has come out with this analysis of the, hydro the hydrological impacts to our forested areas because of the loss of forest cover. So they have now directly linked the loss of forest cover to the floods and fires that we see in the province. Wow. Uh, right through the whole province. So every watershed has been affected by that. So the loss of a forest canopy has led to the frequency and magnitude of floods throughout the province here. The other part of their, of their research that uh, I really kind of focused on 
and the research was mostly down in the Penticton and southern part of the province. But they have they they also state that it takes 80 years for a tree to grow to a height where it will begin to provide the same level of protection from the sun's radiation um, that the original forest had to slow down the melt and 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 make sure that the groundwater doesn't evaporate. That's down south. In the northern interior here and north and the higher elevations, that's more like 100 to 120 years before a tree will reach that height. And that's out of a clear cut, I'm guessing. That's out of a clear cut. So when you look at the fact that we have clear cut 20 million hectares since the mid-1960s, none of those clear cuts have recovered sufficiently enough to protect the sun's radiation from melting the snow in a rapid fashion and washing all our creeks and rivers out and, and leading to the massive floods that we see. So that And loss of life, billions of dollars in damage and loss of life. So that's, that's, uh, you know, that's kept me awake at night trying to figure out how we're going to get around that. Wow. I mean, that's, I, I have heard about the fact, you, see, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. Snow falls down onto a, a clear-cut area, and then, I mean, the sun is right there beating down on it. It's going to melt faster. It's going to increase freshet, right? I've also heard that, you know, that also, speaking of biodiversity, impacts fish species because then you got more silt in the in the rivers, right, and they, and they can't breathe as well. Um, but what about the fires? Can you talk us a little bit more about how, how this clear-cutting might be increasing the our, our fires, which, you know, seems to, seems to me every year we get the, the worst fire season in history, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's uh, a couple of things there. So, you know, if the the spring freshets are, are happening in a rapid manner, um, there's no moisture retention in the bush once the snow is melted and the, the sun has dried out the territory. Um, the rivers have washed everything away. Um, with the sun coming, uh, you know, continuing on through the April, May, June months, it's evaporating and drying out the moisture that's in the ground. And there's no moisture retention in the ground because of the, the snow has melted so quickly and everything's dried up. In addition to that, we see where we've planted these monoculture conifers, uh, particularly pine, which is one of the most uh, flammable species of tree that we have. Um, and they're planted in, you know, 1,500, 2,000 stems per hectare. A lightning strike comes, uh, dry ground, and it just goes up like a grass fire. Only these are, are trees. And and, you know, I've been watching on the news, a lot of the fires that we have have occurred in 20, 30, 40-year-old plantations. Um, and there's nothing to stop them because we've killed all the broadleaf growth in there. We don't leave any of the deciduous as a, as a mitigation measure, measure, number one, but as biodiversity for uh, plants and animals as well. So, yeah, I mean, this seems like a mess to me. We got, you know, communities who are dependent on what we call fiber supply. We've cut so much of it down that there's not much left. I mean, and a lot of that, like you're saying you were seeing this 20 years ago. A lot of the, what I what I understand this kind of annual allowable cut uplift, basically saying that we can harvest more, was to was to respond to the mountain pine beetle infestation. But now you're saying we we don't have enough fiber to, to actually um, keep those mills going, and at the same time our activities have caused ecological disaster basically you know it has you know and people blame it on the pine beetle and the pine beetle was problematic for us and so was the spruce beetle but those are natural occurring phenomena that we have the problem that we had and i brought this to the attention of the council of forest industries in a presentation i made to them in 2015 when i was parliamentary secretary for forestry is that you know you're going in and under the premise of cutting down the the dead pine trees you also cut all the other green species within that block and that's our midterm timber supply that you're cutting. And if you don't throttle back now, 
um, we're going to be out of wood in the next eight to 10 years. And here we are, we're out of wood in the next eight to 10 years. So we, we do have a future, but it's completely different than the future of our force that we've had up to this particular point here. So we need to concentrate. We've got 20 million hectares of these monoculture plantations that are densely planted. We need to thin them out. We need to cut those trees out in a, in a, in an ecological way and and manufacture them into products and and deal with them but it's going to take different equipment different manufacturing standards and processes and whatnot to do that can you talk a little bit about that i mean do you have experience with that we you know i, I was uh last year we did this future forestry event there and a guy from Frey logging came along and he had some interesting approaches to that you, are you familiar with those kinds of things yeah liam and i have talked liam parfit owns or is one of the owners of freya logging and and we have uh, discussed this to a lot uh, to a, a great degree um we're going to be discussing it in the future here as well uh, he's got some different equipment in there and he's got a different process um he's going in the right direction i think we need to apply a little bit more science though as to figuring out how we leave trees which trees we leave and and how we do that in a scientific manner um, there's also another uh, company in town, Westlake Contracting. Uh, he's bought some small equipment as well, a little tiny harvester, and he goes in. And just by himself, he can cut at least a load a day um, with his little machine and load it on his self-loading truck and and haul it to the mill. So I think we're going to see more people employed in the forest sector by going into this new direction. We're not going to see these big you know, machines going through the bush and, and doing the work of 20 men. Now we're going to see 20 men in the bush and and sorting through these small logs and and thinning those plantations out so they don't present the fire hazard but it's also providing employment for everybody so i wonder about that because you know you're st- i assume that when you're doing this commercial thinning operation you're not looking at huge you know 20 inch diameter trees you're looking at something much smaller do we are we going to need to also retrofit our mills to be able to handle those different kinds of trees like is what kind of investment are we going to need here? And, and are we going to be able to actually recoup that investment from the, from the operation? Yeah, I think a lot of the mills have already adjusted for the smaller trees. Um, you know, they've been getting smaller and smaller and smaller all the time. And this is the direction I think that the forest sector wanted to go in the first place, except we've got rid of these, you know, where one tree is a cubic meter basically is what the size has averaged over the years. Now it's going to take us 10 years to make that, or 10 trees to make up that cubic meter. I think what we need to look at is is on the bush side, on the logging side, where you can take these trees down complete branches and all and bundle them tightly together and haul them into a processing facility in a community where we have a mill and use the residuals for bioenergy, for pellets, whatever, whatever the highest value is from that but then manufacture the logs. And, you know, they could be anywhere from four inches in diameter to six inches in diameter, and you'll get two by fours, and you probably might get two by sixes out of them. And uh, and then we might have to look at glue lambs and, and gluing some of those products together to get bigger wood at the end of the day. But we have 20 million hectares to work with. It took us, you know, 55 years to do that, and we're here now. Right, so we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these messages with more from Mike Morris. Community Radio CFISFM needs your support. While our station is run predominantly by volunteers, money is always needed to keep the monthly bills paid as well as for the production of new local programming. Memberships, donations, corporate sponsorships, and advertisers all help to keep your local independent broadcaster functioning. For more information on how you can contribute to this vital part of the Prince George Media Mix, visit our website at cfisfm.ca or give us a call at 250-563-2347. 
Northern Health is taking actions to continue protecting people, communities, and the health care system this respiratory season by encouraging people in the North aged six months and older to get their COVID-19 and influenza vaccines. Visit getvaccinated.gov.bc.ca to get registered. Invitations will then be sent by email and text message with an invitation link to book your vaccine appointment. If you need help scheduling your vaccines, call 1-833-838-2323. Visit northernhealth.ca for clinic information in your community. Canadian Arts and Culture Organizations. Student Work Placement Program at the Cultural Human Resources Council is able to provide wage subsidies for post-secondary level students to work for you. A two-minute phone call to confirm your eligibility, 20 minutes to complete the online application, and you'll secure thousands of dollars in less than two weeks. If you hired, currently employ, or would like to hire students, we want to hear from you. Find our contact info at culturalhrc.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada. A mix of sun and cloud today, becoming cloudy this afternoon. Wind up to 15K. A high of minus 3 with a wind chill this afternoon to minus 12. For tonight, snow beginning after midnight. Wind continuing. A low of minus 7 with a wind chill to minus 10. More snow on Saturday. Wind from the south at 20 and a high of plus 1. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station. 93.1 CFIS-FM. We're talking with Mike Morris, MLA for Prince George McKenzie, a little bit about uh, the future of our forests, actually. This is the name of a new initiative you started up. We talked a little bit about the economic solutions that you see going on, you know, needing to change how we harvest and how we mill, maybe moving into more value-added stuff like glue lamb. The, the province has put out this biodiversity and ecosystem health framework, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that. That seems to be on the other side, the kind of ecological side of things. Do you think that that's going to actually improve how you know the the outcomes we see in the bush maybe bring some of those uh wildlife species back that you say have been uh really brought down uh well i guess any step in that direction is a good step Uh, i get frustrated when i see all these 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 consultation processes slowing down um what actually needs to happen on the ground um we need you know i'll put it bluntly we need somebody with balls to make a decision and go in that direction regardless. Um, there's a lot of pressure on government, and, and I've been subjected to that many, many times, and, and still am to a degree, um, from the forest industry itself. They want to keep on going and doing the same old, same old that we've done for the last 75 years with the, the sustainable yield strategy. Um, but science has evolved. We have science on the table now, uh, 20 years worth of science or 30 years worth of science, but it's, it's coming every day, that says we've been doing the wrong thing. You know, I, have, I can't believe how many studies I've read, um, biological studies on wildlife, um, where it says that the greatest threat is the loss of habitat. Yet we still continually cut this habitat down daily, you know, uh, 250,000 uh, hectares a year. Uh, so the cumulative impact of that is we've logged most of the province and, uh, and we've lost that biodiversity. So the, the science is there. We just need to make the decision and say, this is the direction we're going to go, ladies and gentlemen. This is the fact of reality. You know, when we have a liability facing us and a very significant liability facing government and industry both with the fact that now science has said the loss of the tree canopy is contributing to the increased frequency and magnitude of floods across the province. And, and I know that there's some lawsuits out right now or, or beginning uh, uh, with respect to some of the massive flooding we saw in communities uh, over the last few years, um, we better sit up and take it, pay attention to that right now. Not yesterday, but right now. So this science has been out there for 20 years. It culminated in a, in a discussion or in a science brief 
um, pro at the end of 2023. So I think industry and and government should be put on notice right now, saying you need to change right now in order to accommodate this this new. Uh, um, liability that we face. I mean, it sounds to me like, you know, you've mentioned this already. If we change right now, we're still not going to see those impacts for maybe decades down the road. And frankly, you know, voters uh, are losing jobs right now because of the, the I guess, what, frankly, the need to shift away from our current uh, current way we actually harvest those logs. How are we in the north if if this forest industry needs to change so significantly and frankly like it sounds to me like we're going to reduce the number of jobs that are out there further um what else is out there that can actually employ people in this region and keep and keep this economy moving Good question yeah um, uh, um and, and we have lots of opportunity out here We've had our head pale, uh, buried in this forestry pail for so long that we can't think of other ways to do business uh, but when I look at West Coast oil fins, we're talking about the, you know taking the liquids off of the natural gas that we have coming right through Prince George here, um, and that there's two million dollars a day of product in those liquids that we can pull off without affecting the end result of the of the gas itself. Um, when we look at uh, polypropylenes and polyethylenes and and those plastics, that's not going to go away. Um, all you know, our cars are full of plastic. Our airplane fuselages are eighty percent or sixty percent polymers and whatnot, and that comes from that. So we could be putting thousands and thousands of people to work in the liquids extraction plant, in the polyethylene plants. Uh, you know, we would you know a thousand people per plant, but the downstream manufacturing opportunities from that as well. We look at the electrification of British Columbia that is so prominent and 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 necessary. Um, but we need mining products, and we have the world's richest mineral deposits in the northwest part of the province here on the way to Alaska. Let's build that Alaska Railway. There's a report that says we'll get 35,000 permanent jobs just by building that. Let's build another smelter perhaps in Mackenzie and start smeltering the, the products right here and then manufacturing those products right here in British Columbia. So the, the world is at our doorstep. We just need to acknowledge it that there's something more than forestry out there as we take the next hundred years to rebuild our forest and come at it with an ecological um, forest practices rather than cut everything down at once. Okay, this is, I mean, this is very optimistic, but I want to play devil's advocate here. You know, you talked about cumulative effects from forestry. Well, what about the cumulative effects from all these new mining operations, for instance? What's, how are those going to impact our, our ecosystem? Yep. So when you look at the fact that forestry, uh, and I did this, when I looked at the cumulative impacts of wildlife habitat, which was why Christy Clark appointed me as the, uh, as the Parliamentary Secretary of Forestry, um, the impact from mines, you can hardly see a mine. When, you, when you're looking on Google Earth or you're do, looking at the maps, the footprint is relatively small in comparison to all the clear cuts that you see taking place uh, around the, the province here, right across the continent. And uh, so mining has a very small footprint, and it's contained within that particular area. And I think when we look at the engineering, and Mount Polly was, was a good example, and it's a lesson learned for, uh, for engineers and everybody else. But we can do it much better, and we can build a smelter using the greatest technology in the world. Uh, will there still be some impact to the environment? There perhaps could be, but it is minuscule in comparison to what we see from the cumulative impacts of forestry, for an example. That's super interesting, and I think it's, it's very hopeful. One other question I've got, because, you know, these mines, back in the day, Tumbler Ridge, right? They built yep. a town around the mine. 
and it and although it has had its ups and downs, you know, Tumblr Ridge still exists. Nowadays, you've got guys going on two weeks on, one week off. You know, they have to do these these really, frankly, tough um, rotations in order to get in and out of these camps. Do you think we're going to get away from that and actually start building towns around these these big mines again so that people can actually live in community? Because this is one of the things that I see in Prince George. If you've got two-thirds of the time, uh, you know, someone, a member of the family that is actually off somewhere else, they're not spending their money in town. They're not contributing to the community in town. And they have to do this this really intense work out there. They don't get to spend time with their family. It doesn't sound to me like, uh, you know, we're, we're thinking about the whole of society, just as we need to think about the whole of the ecosystem. I think we should be thinking about the whole of society. Do you think that we're going to be able to actually address those things? Well, that's a phenomenon. I don't think we're going to go back to those those mill towns and mining towns and stuff that we see. Um, technology has changed. We've got airplanes that fly longer and faster. People want to live. And in fact, the Canada's Constitution says that we can live anywhere we want and travel anywhere we want and work everywhere we want. So I think we need to adapt to that. And we have for a large degree. We're not going to see any new tumbler ridges. We're not going to see any more new Mackenzie's. Mackenzie was built for the fourth sector. Um, we have to adapt those the tree locations. crusher, right? The tree crusher. <laughs> Mackenzie would be an excellent location for um, nuclear power. It would be an excellent location for a new smelter. Um, so though, though we have to think differently out there, and and people may commute back and forth. Prince George will be a regional hub. Uh, we're going to have Fort St. James, and and we're still going to have Mackenzie and Tumbler Ridge, but it's going to be a different facet. It might be. You know, people going there for tourism or going there for a cheaper place to buy a home or, or to live, but they're going to have to commute to Prince George for medical and, and all the specialized services that we have. All right. I really appreciate the time, Mike. I know I, I, I alerted Joe I wanted to play a little game here. Look in your crystal ball. What do you see for the outcome in the, in the election? Now that you don't have to run in it, <laughs> you think there's, you, you got, a, you got a, a prediction here for the fall election? You know, I, I think, uh, it, you know, we're, we have been and we tend to be a very polarized province, but I think 90% of the voters are in the middle. And any party that can attract that middle vote um, without scaring the hell out of them, I think are going to uh, get the nod from the public here. So um, I think the BC United probably can offer that opportunity. I'm waiting with bated breath to hear uh, about who all the candidates will be. We've announced some pretty good candidates so far. So we'll see. But uh, um, I've, I've never been a real political like a lot of other people are out there. And Not uh, into the horse race? No, not into the horse race. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll participate and I'll, <laughs> uh, I'll live with the outcome because that's what democracy is all about. All right. Thanks so much, Mike. Uh, great to see you. Mike Morris, uh, MLA for Prince George McKenzie. Great. Learn how to write grants for your artistic endeavors during Grant Writing for Artists, February 20th and 27th at Studio 2880. Bring a pen and paper to find out what grants are available and how to apply. Instructed by Shelby Richardson, registration and full details for this specially priced workshop are available through the Arts North link at Studio2880.com. Grant Writing for Artists, Tuesday, February 20th and 27th from 6 to 8.30 at Studio 2880. 
Learn to love your smile again at Der Denture Center. Der Denture Center offers a full range of denture services from partial dentures to complete dentures. Same-day repairs are also available. Der Denture Center is located on the third floor of the Victoria Medical Building with easy elevator access. Come in for a free complimentary consultation. No referral required. For help with your existing set or if you need new, Der Denture Center in the Victoria Medical Building. Call 250-562-6638. What is evangelism? Luther says it's simple. The gospel is a story about Jesus. He wrote, Before you take Christ as your example, accept him and recognize him as a gift, as a present that God has given you and that is your own. Dr. Michael Ziegler this week on The Lutheran Hour. Are you thinking of selling your business? It's Dave Fuller here, a business coach and a business broker living right here in Prince George. The challenge of being a business owner is that much of our retirement funds are often tied up in the business. If you are getting ready to retire and sell your business, give me a call, 250-617-7467, and we can talk confidentially about how much your business might be worth and how you might be able to get that money out of the business and into your pocket. Again, Dave Fuller, 250-617-7467, or check out our website, pivotleader.com. At Pivot Leader, we have help you grow, train, and sell your business. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right, welcome to the Friday Political Panel. Today we got Eric Allen, Rosalind Bird. Welcome, Rosalind. Thank you. Peter Ewart and Trudy Clausen. Uh, I'm going to start today talking a little bit about there's a, it's not quite a leak, but it has been a confirmed position of the uh, Canadian Conservative Party, the Conservative Party of Canada that they are going to be um, working on this policy proposal called the First Nations Resource Charge, which would give First Nations greater control over resource revenues. Um, essentially, there's some kind of, you know, what, what are normally impact benefit agreements that are, that are negotiated on a project-by-project project basis. It sounds like this is a way to actually, like, make some um, fundamental changes to how, how taxes roll out. It was actually developed first by the First Nations Tax Commission, uh, the chief commissioner, Manny Jewell, is there. It's interesting, Eric. I mean, the conservatives have not necessarily been the the party of, you know, First Nations friendship, for instance, right? Um, lots, of, uh, lots of criticism to the way the last conservative prime minister, Stephen Harper, handled that relationship. What do you think is happening here? You think this is just them getting out in front and trying to prevent uh, other, you know, their, their political adversaries telling them that they're, they have no uh, kind of First Nations policy? Sort of a partnership agreement or something. I think that's how the money is, is 
Depends on the sector. Depends on you know in the province there are these there's these um, things called F curses, First Nations Crown revenue sharing agreements, right? Um, but a lot of that is you know often historically has been left up to the industry itself to kind of determine these these agreements, right? Yeah. So to me, it looks like there has to be a lot of work done there. I don't know if uh, the conservatives would be the people to do it or not. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll find out. Rosalyn, were you surprised that the federal conservatives are considering, uh, you know, sharing revenue with First Nations uh, in, in, with this with this proposal? Well, I'm not surprised about it. Um, although I do, I, I do share some of the concerns um, that were just uh, talked about. Um, I don't think it's clear where the uh, the overlap is going to be between federal, provincial, some of the land sharing stuff that's been announced provincially in the last couple of weeks. Um, but I think those I think those relationships are extremely important. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that they're talking about those relationships and how they want to to move forward with those in the future. Um, but I would agree the overlap between federal and provincial that is that is somewhat confusing. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so much of this regulatory and frankly tax base is provincial, right? Like way back, I think it was 1888. They you know the Supreme Court just determined. The province is actually uh, the, the owner of kind of crown land inside that province, um, so it's interesting like where the where the Conservative Party of Canada thinks they're going to be able to implement this, whether it's maybe thought leadership or something. But there are plenty of other you know anything that crosses a, a provincial boundary um, or things that are federally regulated. Peter, what do you think about this? Is you know is this a <laughs> we're not quite in the election the federal election yet, but it seems like it could be something that is gearing towards that. Do you, do, you have, do you think that they're, this is kind of like a more of a political maneuver than anything? Uh, well, I, you know, I think it's, uh, y- yes, th- there's always politics involved with these kinds of things. But uh, according to, you know, various uh, Indigenous leaders, uh, the, uh, this First Nations resource charge was initiated by ing- Indigenous people and, and is a step forward for Indigenous people. Uh, it gives some taxation powers to uh, indigenous people on resource projects, potentially more revenue, and it eliminates the bureaucratic tangle for resource project uh, uh, approval. Others are cautiously optimistic, but despite all the flowery language from Polyev and the conservatives, believe that the devil is in the details and that we'll, we'll have to see what the results are in terms of real benefits to indigenous people. And still others point out that taxation of resources is only part of the much bigger issue of indigenous all-sided control over their traditional lands, as well as the right of free, prior, and informed consent for resource projects to go ahead. You know, for, exa- for example, uh, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, president of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, says that, quote, we need government and all political parties to move away from the colonial frontier notions of resource extraction to responsible, sustainable management of resource development. So I, you know, I I I, th- I can see where you know the th- this would be seen as a step forward, but at the same time, uh, you know, th- there's a large, you know, l- much larger issues as well that still need to be uh, sorted out in s- in, s- in terms of uh, ha- indigenous people having more control and more decision making uh, over their territory. Um, you know, in in other words, um, eliminating. Uh, the legacy of colonialism and in that regard there's that's, a, that's a tall order yeah <laughs> i want much left to be done yeah uh peter peter mentions free prior and informed consent 
it's kind of an interesting idea. Like in advance of us going into questioning whether or not this resource uh, project is good is good for you, your lands, your territories, your families, your societies, we're going to make sure you know that there's revenue sharing in advance. Do you think that that is a way to change the kind of conversation around what consent actually looks like? Trudy? Um, no, I don't think so. And I and I and I want to address something that I have found incredibly interesting over the last five years. It used to be that any time there was any idea of resource extraction in an area that um, uh, where First Nations, uh, where their reserves were or where their territories, that First Nations were unequivocally against it. That has changed significantly even before this. Uh, they have seen uh, more and more that they want to be, uh, like that idea of economic reconciliation, that is happening more and more. And First Nations are seeing the benefits that any development in their regions will, the benefit that will bring to them and their people. Um, I mean, Ellis Ross is the classic example of this, right? I mean, he spent so many years trying to get, um, uh, to improve the mental health and, and uh, emotional health and, and spiritual well health of his community. And finally, when LNG came along, that was just such a big chain game changer. So I don't think it's anything new. I think, I don't think it's going to change. I think it's just going to give a little bit more and I, I think what the, what I what I see here is a bit more of an acknowledgement of this is how it should be. And I think for the rest of us who aren't First Nations, this will. I'm. I mean, my hope is that something like this will result in more of the wealth being retained where it's created. Interesting. All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these messages. For the first time in 12 years, professional wrestling is making a triumphant return to the Prince George Civic Center. February 16th and 17th, be on hand for a full card of primetime wrestling, including four-foot-two world-traveled attraction, Short Sleeve Samson. As usual, event proceeds will benefit local Prince George charities. Ticket details will be released soon. That's primetime wrestling, February 16th and 17th at the Civic Center. For more information, check out Primetime Wrestling's social media channels. If you have an interest in volunteering with the arts... Two Rivers Gallery may be the place for you. There are many programs you may like to help with, including art explorations, exhibition tours, children's classes, special events, and many more opportunities. For more information, email sophia at tworiversgallery.ca. Call the gallery at 250-614-7800 or stop by the Two Rivers Gallery where creativity flows in Canada Games Plaza. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity, and Recreation Council is accepting applications from Indigenous and not-for-profit organizations serving Indigenous youth to host a sport development camp, coaching certification course, or officials training session. These are community-based programs ranging from one or two days to multiple weeks. Applications and full details are available through ispark.ca. That's I-S-P-A-R-C dot C-A. The application deadline for 2024 second quarter programs and events is March 31st. Forecast from Environment Canada. A mix of sun and cloud today, becoming cloudy this afternoon. Wind at 15K, a high of minus 3 with a wind chill this afternoon to minus 12. For tonight, snow beginning after midnight. Wind continuing, a low of minus 7 with a wind chill to minus 10. More snow on Saturday, wind from the south at 20 and a high of plus 1. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right, we're back with the Friday political panel. Uh, we're going to move on to some more local uh, local news here. So Bell has closed a whole slew of radio and television stations across the country. Um, it's 
they and they're, they've sold 45 of 103 regional radio stations. A whole bunch of those have actually ended up in the hands of relatively local company Vista Radio. They they run uh, a series or a, I guess a, a franchise or what do you call that syndicate syndicate of uh, of radio stations from northern British Columbia through Alberta into Northwest Territories, and they've taken on these these radio stations from Bell. I mean, the big question that I've got here is, you know, if Bell can't keep this rolling, and they they did this after having slashed their workforce exceptionally, and they already have all the infrastructure for, you know, this kind of economy of scale, do we actually think that Vista is going to going to be able to keep it rolling, and and also like, I just keep freaking out about this because if Vista can't make it work, it means that we're going to be we are going to all lose another set of really important ways that we get our local news, which is through Vista Radio. I'm sure all of us either listen to Vista Radio or look at the, the website for, for our news, right? Rosalind, I mean, do you think that this is actually going to work for Vista? I, I think it's an interesting uh, situation, and I think it's an important situation for us to actually have a really good hard look at. Um, I think local radio and local promotion, local news, all of those types of things are extremely important, um, particularly the farther north you go um, and you get away from the big centers. And I think this is something we could actually improve across the country. And so I think there's positives and negatives to what has just happened, but I think there's tremendous possibility here. And I think it's something that has drawn attention and maybe we're at a point where we can really have a good hard look at this and see where we want our media and our distribution of media and who supplements the cost of that media um, and, and see what that looks like moving mm. forward. So sounds, It sounds to me like Rosalind's pointing towards you know potentially some kind of subsidy program in order to maintain um, stations in our communities. Uh, you know, Peter, when we talk about the economy of scale, to my mind, that sounds like reducing the number of people who are actually reporting on the news and centralizing it, which is not going to serve our local communities. Do you think that that's where, they, where they're going to go? Uh, yeah, I think it's headed in that direction. Like, we have a situation where, you know, Bell is an example of hyper-monopolization. Like, over the years, uh, you know, Bell has scooped up uh, s- smaller local outlets and built this, uh, you know, this monster-sized corporation and, and with handouts from government and so on. And now, now who's going to pay the price? Who gets hurt? Uh, of course, are the the workforce, the the journalists and others involved, as well as local communities where local news gets uh, really suffocated here, you know. So, uh, and this is at a time when the BCE, the you know the parent corporation, is making uh, huge profits and and so on, you know. So uh, people are being left out in the cold. And there's more that can be coming, come, I think, in the sense because the technological change has pulled the rug right out from underneath the whole uh, news industry. And uh, we're in a period of transition now uh, where, um, I, and I think what we need, like what, what Rosalind was mentioning there about the question of, um, you know, having discussion about, okay, what kind of local media and so on. We need, I, I think we need new forms, new models for media that um, the, the old models are, are falling apart, so we need, to, we need to have that discussion. You know, and this is a, uh, you know, across you know, whatever po- political you know, point of view people have, I think it's, a, it's, it's something that cuts across all that, right? And uh, so, yeah, we need, we, need to l- we need to look at new ways of, of, uh, of the news 
and uh, new forms, new models for media. I'm interested in, you know, the technological change, kind of pulling the rug out from under, frankly, the advertising, right? Although um, I'm just looking at some stats here. They're projected to have 23.4 million adult radio listeners in the coming year, which is actually down 2 million since 2021. So you've got, you actually have a shrinking number of people listening, but that's still a valuable, that's almost, what is that? More than half of the population is listening to the radio. Um, Trudy, like, do you think there needs to be some regulation around these these radio stations to ensure that they continue to provide news if they have a license in a community? Because they could easily automate this whole thing, syndicate the thing, have one you know one guy running the whole switchboard, right? Just like we have here at CFIS. <laughs> uh, do you think that we need to actually make sure that that, that they have a commitment to local news if they start uh, buying these news these stations up? Well, I think. You know, I, I, I appreciate what Rosalind was saying um, about, you know, we need to really seriously have a big conversation here because as um, I think one thing that we need to look at as part of that conversation is what are we doing that causes harm to local media, to small media, to, to like, because sometimes, like, has anyone asked that question? What makes it difficult for small local media to survive? Do we have regulations that make it, that, that are actually contributing to the problem? So that needs to be looked at. Um, and I think, though, for other than re the regulatory system that, you know, just we need to look at is also business is, um, I, I, would, I think this is a problem for business to solve. Um, and it might be, like, we might be heading for a year, for a, a little period of time here where our news gets even more disconnected from our local population. But if you remember what Cameron Stoltz was talking about yesterday about his purchase of the citizen and wanting to make it a community boosting, like not a fake newspaper, but the the focus would be community building and that kind of thing. I mean, it's a bit high, like pie in the sky I thinking, but, you know, over time, if you have, if business tries to solve this problem, because that's generally the role of business, right? Trying to solve those problems that, that are affecting people day to day that might be the best route to go and other than looking at the regulations that are causing harm to small local media outlets. I wonder if we should characterize that as a philanthropic intervention rather than a business intervention considering he took on he took he bought that paper with the expectation to continuously lose money. <laughs> <laughs> well, then maybe we need somebody to challenge that and and you know to start up a profitable enterprise. Eric, you got last word here. More regulations or do you think business is going to solve this? Uh, I think they'll solve it. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> Bell owned them all, and uh, being a big company like it is, you know, every now and then these guys shake the tree and whatever falls out doesn't work there anymore. But Vista and these other ones that bought up the, uh, until we hear what they're going to do with these stations that they bought up, I'm, uh, you know, I just assume that, you know, they made a business decision that must be in their better interest or they think it's in their best interest. Otherwise, why do it? So uh, what's, what's actually going to change? All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be back after these messages. Learn how to take great winter wonderland photos with the Arts North Winter Photography Workshop Saturday. Instructor Michael Cast will help you get the right exposure so your snowy scene is crisp 
and white. Sign up and be ready for some classwork and a Cottonwood Island Park excursion. Registration and full details are available through the Arts North link at studio2880.com. The Winter Photography Workshop with Michael Cast, Saturday from 10 to noon at Studio 2880. There are so many ways to enjoy the great taste of Boston pizza, it's hard to keep track. You can dine in at either Prince George location, Central Street West, or Vance Road. You can order your delicious meal with pickup at either location or arrange it to be delivered hot and fresh. Not sure what to order? Check the menu out online at bostonpizza.com. Boston Pizza, two locations in Prince George on Central Street West and Vance Road. What is evangelism? Luther says it's simple. The gospel is a story about Jesus. He wrote, Before you take Christ as your example, accept him and recognize him as a gift, as a present that God has given you and that is your own. Dr. Michael Ziegler this week on The Lutheran Hour. Love Bingo? CFIS 93.1 has Tuesday evening TV bingo ready for your enjoyment. Get together with friends and play for a chance at great cash prizes. Bingos are broadcast live via YouTube from Chet TV in Chetwind. Card tickets are $5 each, available at CFIS FM Studios, 1299 3rd Avenue, Monday through Friday from 8.30 to 5 and 8.30 to 2 Saturday. In support of CFIS 93.1, Tuesday evening Chet TV Bingo, BC Gaming License number 146929, Know Your Limit, Play Within It. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS FM. All right, we're back with the Friday political panel. The latest uh, casualty in the uh, the Mideast conflict is actually a B.C. cabinet minister. Selena Robinson resigned from cabinet after she made a comment claiming that, you know, when Israel was found that it was just a, a crappy piece of land with nothing on it, um, obviously upsetting uh, those folks who are more allied with the Palestinian side of things, considering that we all know that during the founding of Jeru- of Israel, there were a lot of people who were displaced uh, on both sides. Right, that that time, right around you know, actually between the twenties and the forties, people were having to move seemingly uh, daily. Regardless, um, Robinson has resigned, um, and I just find it interesting. You know, that happened in the blink of an eye for something that is really only happening halfway around the world. The last person that we talked about, Mitzi Dean. Uh, she got removed from her cabinet post after having uh, presided over what they called the House of Horrors and after having really alienated a, 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 a autistic parents. Um, a question here is like, is this brewing storm between functionally Muslim and Jewish groups, voting groups, actually going to impact the NDP's forecasted landslide election win? Uh, yeah, it may have some influence, but... Uh uh, I think that uh, you know the uh, and the NDP government you know was put in a position there that they they had to take this action. You know, Selena Robinson was an embarrassment to the province in terms of uh, especially in that she was the minister of advanced education, and presumably advanced education involves history, and uh, <laughs> and what she seemed to be completely ignorant about. You know, just some comments about that. You know, about this whole thing about a crap, crappy piece of land with nothing on it. Well, first of all, she said, oh, there was just several hundred thousand people. Actually, there were 750,000 Palestinians, both Muslims and Christians, who ended up as refugees displayed 
displaced by the, by the Zionists to impose an apartheid state th through force of arms. Uh, she says it didn't produce an economy. Well, it was n that's not true. It was ma at that time, it was mainly a farm-based economy with some industry. You know, uh, so it's kind of like a bias against farmers as well as Palestinians. <laughs> uh, and furthermore, the, she said it couldn't grow things. That's not true. You know, the, the famous Jaffa oranges uh, were, were grown there, bananas, cotton, wheat, etc. And furthermore, she said it didn't have anything on it, which was not true. There's many villages and towns. People have lived there for thousands of years. You know, so y you have this concept of terra nullius, you know, the idea that there's an empty land which was used to justify the seizure of land uh, in North America. Um, but um, it seems to be, uh, she seems to be pushing forth that idea. And I, th I think uh, th there's a real problem there. There's a terrible slaughter going on there. And uh, I would, uh, anyone who wants to look at it, they should look up, uh, get Al Jazeera on their, uh, uh, on their TV just to see the extent of, the, 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 of this terrible slaughter that's going on that's conducted by the state of Israel against Palestinians. So, I mean, I, I, I don't want to disagree with that, that fact, but my question, I guess, is whether people's opinions on this thing that's happening way over there should, is, will impact kind of electoral politics here in B.C., Trudy? I think it would be really sad if it did. I, uh, I think I, I would strongly disagree with Peter's characterization of of uh, Selena Robertson's um, of her comments because I I think the context was a little bit different and 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 I, and I don't like that kind of politics where somebody is slaughtered for saying you know four words maybe incorrectly and 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 quoted out of context um, but in terms I think we really have to think strongly what kind of Canada do we actually want if we want a multicultural country which are you know, that has been the goal of Canada for the past, I mean, since the 70s. Um, we cannot do that. We cannot bring foreign conflicts into our politics because that completely negates the premise. So we either have to grow up and, and not do that and not let that affect our, our local um, political uh, systems and, and conversation in terms of how we, we govern ourselves, or we toss aside multiculturalism. I don't think we have a choice there. We either s stop doing this and, and not, not allow it to influence our, our uh, you know, provincial or federal local politics, or we, we have to relook at multiculturalism as a failed policy. Hmm. Uh, Eric, do you think that the NDP is actually going to suffer from, uh, from this action, either with on one side or the other of this, of this conflict? Well, I think that E.B., the move that he's making here is to uh, kind of protect his base in the next election. You know, the two big things that, that the driving force behind what they're talking about is the fact that uh, they were disinvited to some of the mosques down in the greater Vancouver area, and they canceled a, a big... Uh, uh, they canceled a fundraiser. Yeah, a big fundraiser. Like, that's the news here, right? Yeah, so... I think that's a real story, but I, I don't like how those things come about necessarily. But this day and age, that's what happens. You know, we've got back east uh, in Ottawa there, we've got the NDP guy putting all kinds of pressure on uh, the Liberals to bring in NDP programs that I don't recall anybody campaigning on or voting on. And yet we could end up with a lot of this just through that. Uh, you don't want free dental care, Eric? Already got dental care. <laughs> <laughs> to pay for it. There's nothing wrong with paying for it. 
You know, but if you want it, it's free, yeah. No, it's, uh, I, they don't even tell you how many people actually uh, need dental care and how many already have it. They, they leave those numbers hanging out in the back 40 somewhere. Right. So you're saying Canada. you're saying basically that some of these like basically smaller groups are maybe going to be impacting the the uh, yeah kind of policies. It, I can see it getting worse in the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Rosalind, you got last word here. Do you think that this is actually going to impact the outcome of the election? It may. Um, I think it's a very interesting scenario in that um, I, th I think it's very important for elected officials and Canadians in general to understand and recognize that there are conflicts and there are things happening around the world that do impact people here in Canada, uh, not necessarily directly, but indirectly due to family relations, history, migration, immigration, all of those types of things. Um, but I also think there's a, a leadership issue here where I think it's extremely important that all elected officials, you know, be responsible for what it is they're saying and what it is that they're creating in what it is that they're saying. So discrimination or reverse discrimination are, are still discrimination. And as a leader of a party, you know, you need to be sensitive that, to that and take responsibility not only for yourself but the individuals that you are leading. So whether it was a right or a wrong decision is... Is, is basically an individual interpretation. Um, but I think that that's extremely important for us to recognize that there is a lot of division, not just in B.C., but across Canada. And it's something we want to reduce, not increase. Hmm. So, so the, I mean, what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, if someone is making those kind of... what It was a very divisive comment, right? This crappy piece of land, I've got to say that the Terry Nellis thing, I think you're right on with that, right? It's trying to, it's trying to kind of erase... The, the previous population there um years the the that's a divisive comment and therefore she should be taken down not because of which side you're on in this conflict but because it furthered that division is that kind of where you're going i think that's important to recognize that as somebody that's elected and sitting in government that you need to be very cognizant of what it is that you're saying and what reaction you're going to get from those comments yeah not just because you want them to vote for you but because we want to have civil discourse Hey? What a thing. What a thing. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for your time. Uh, have a great weekend. That was a fantastic show. After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis-Holt.